0: Welcome to episode 12 of City Break St Petersburg, music and theatre in St Petersburg. A lovely opportunity to think about some of the many world-renowned composers who made their home here, traces of whom can be found all over the city, and think too about some of the music that was composed here. It is, after all, the city famous for its White Nights Festival, when evening after evening in June and early July, there are magnificent concerts every night and the programmes are full of names that you'll recognise like Glinka, Tchaikovsky and Rubinstein, all of whom will have a potted biography in this episode, as will Stravinsky and Shostakovich. I'm going to think too about some of the places you can visit in the city if you're particularly interested in music, the concert halls, the museums and so on, and give a brief mention also to theatre. I'm assuming that for most people, music and ballet is much more accessible if you don't have any Russian But nevertheless, there are some glorious little theatres that you can visit just for their own sake, even if you don't sit through a long performance in Russian of something classical. Although, let's not rule that out. There must be people who would like to do that. I'd like to, I just don't have the Russian. I'd like to start with a few words on the composer Mikhail Glinka, who has become known really as the father of Russian music. He was born in 1804, and as a young man, he went to Europe. He toured places like Italy, France, Germany, learning everything he could about Western music, Western European music. You'll remember there's been this tussle all through the centuries about Russia and its eastern roots, and the idea that for many people the thing to do was become more like the rest of Western Europe. So he toured Europe, finding out what he could, But he came home, in fact, determined to do what he called compose like a Russian. And he set out to write an opera with a very Russian plot. And the result was an opera called A Life for the Tsar, which tells the story of a peasant, one Ivan Suzanin, who was a serf, belonged to a tsarevich, a future tsar, and who sacrificed his life to save his master from a murderous band of Cossacks and Poles. So very patriotic the music was adapted from Russian folk tunes and this piece has been called The Beginning of the Age of Russian Music and Glinka himself has gained the label The Father of Russian Music. He composed other well-known pieces such as, for example, the orchestral piece Kamarinskaya, which was also it had its roots in Russian folk tunes and about which 50 years later Tchaikovsky wrote of its importance for all the Russian music that came afterwards the way he put it was that Russian music was rooted in Glinker's music quote, in the same way as the whole oak is in the acorn. If you want to see some traces of Glinker, you can find a bust of him in the Admiralty Gardens, up at the top end of the Nevsky Prospect, and outside the Rimsky-Korsakov Conservatory, Russia's, or rather Saint Petersburg's, very famous music conservatory, music school. There is a statue of him. And that's fitting because it was exactly in that building where his opera, A Life for the Tsar, premiered in 1836. Also, if you visit the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, you'll find that that's where he's buried. Just to give you a 20th century take on Glinker, or one person's perspective anyway, in a book called All from an Ambassador's Memoirs, written by Maurice Paléologue, a French visitor to St. Petersburg in the early 20th century, he describes an evening at the Mariinsky Theatre in September 1914, at which A Life of the Tsar was played. He talks first about the various national anthems that were played, the Russian one first, of course, and then the anthems of all Russia's soon-to-be allies in the war, so Rule Britannia, the Marseillaise, and the Japanese national anthem, all greeted apparently with great cheers and shouts. Following on from this, there was to be a performance of Glinka's opera, A Life for the Tsar, and this is what Maurice Palliologue had to write about that. Quote, Then we had to sit through the Life for the Tsar, a stale and frigid work with its too official loyalty and its too old-fashioned Italianism. The public enjoyed it all the same, for Glinka's drama touches the very fibres of the Russian conscience. So there again then, that idea that there's something very, very Russian about Glinka's music. Another very Russian composer, coming a generation later, born in 1840, was perhaps the one who's become the most famous of them all, and that's Tchaikovsky. He wasn't actually born in St. Petersburg, he was born in the Urals, but he grew up in the city, went to school there, learned piano there, from a teacher who said that he had, quote, an amazing subtlety of ear, memory and excellent hands. But we know, too, that when the same teacher was asked by Tchaikovsky's father, whether his son should really devote himself to music, the teacher said no, he didn't think he should. He gave his reasoning as follows, quote, at the time I had no belief in Tchaikovsky's exceptional talent. And to me what that says is St. Petersburg in the 1840s, 50s, had lots of very gifted children and that Tchaikovsky at that stage at least didn't particularly stand out. As a young man it was decided that he would follow the route of the law and he graduated from the School of Jurisprudence in 1859. But really right from the beginning of his time there there was a tussle in his mind about was that what he should be doing or should he throw it all in and give himself up to music. All of this is very well described in a biography of Tchaikovsky written by Roland John Wiley. He tells us for example that in the first few months that he worked at the Ministry of Justice, which was his first post-graduating job, his supervisor wrote the following, titular councillor Tchaikovsky, who finished his studies in 1859, has attracted particular attention by his constant diligence and exact fulfilling of obligations. But we know also that at the same time Tchaikovsky was beginning to have doubts. He's thinking about studying music instead, he's discussing it with his family, he's writing about it in letters. Here's a quote, for example, from a letter that he wrote in 1861. Papa claims that it is still not too late to become an artist. If that was so, it would be excellent. But the fact is, if there is talent in me, it is now probably impossible to develop. They have made me a bureaucrat, and a poor one at that. I try as much as possible to improve myself, take my service work ever more seriously. And suddenly, can I study general base at the same time? Something happened then which made his mind up for him. One Anton Rubinstein arrived in St. Petersburg, began to do lots for the music scene there. He created, for example, something called the Russian Musical Society in St. Petersburg. He began to offer concerts, very high-quality concerts, and start teaching. And before long, Tchaikovsky had taken the opportunity to start studying there. We know that he studied piano and flute and organ, He studied other aspects of music, like counterpoint, instrumentation. He took free composition classes. He was taught by Rubinstein himself. Tchaikovsky later said that he had found that quote extraordinarily inspiring. We know that he worked very hard. We know that it wasn't unusual for him to stay up all night to finish an assignment if he had a piece of music to hand in. At the same time, he's still writing letters saying, I don't know whether I should leave my service at the Ministry of Justice. Can I really do that? And in the end, he comes to a decision. So from a letter written in eighteen sixty three, here he is making up his mind. You, I think, will not deny in me an aptitude for music, but also that it is the only thing for which I have an aptitude. If that is the case, then you understand that I must sacrifice everything to develop and form what God gave me in the womb. He goes on to talk about his resolve to leave the civil service then. He says that, of course, he's going to have to earn his money somehow. He has no intention of asking for money from the family. He's hoping to get a teaching post at the Conservatory, and he's already made a start by finding some people to whom he's going to give lessons. He knows it's going to be tough. He says, for example, that, quote, I have completely repudiated worldly pleasures, fancy clothes, etc. My expenses will be reduced to extraordinarily small amounts. So he's thought it through and he's going to go for it and he ends his letter with a much quoted sentence which reads like this. Of one thing only I am certain that an excellent musician will come of me and that I shall always have my daily bread. And the rest, as they say, is history. So not too many years after that out start coming his wonderful compositions Romeo and Juliet in 1869, for example. Those other wonderful ballets, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty and The Nutcracker symphonies, concertos, the famous 1812 overture, a stream of music destined for posterity came out during the 1870s and 80s. His music was deemed to be a mix of influences, again this tussle of what's Russian and what is there to learn from West Europe, and his music is very much seen as a mixture of influences from Russian folk music, yes certainly, but also influences from composers from the rest of Western Europe. Tchaikovsky died in 1893. Rather sadly it's believed that he drank some contaminated water. He was sitting at a table and his companions actually said to him don't drink that you don't know what it'll do to you but he went ahead and did it, contracted cholera and died. His funeral was held in St Petersburg. He'd actually spent quite a lot of his time in Moscow in, in the years since he became well known but his funerals here in the city and again described in great detail in Roland John Wiley's biography. He actually writes, The grandeur of his funeral was extraordinary. He talks about the fact that at least 12 different religious services were held in the apartment where his body had been lying in rest. Classes at the conservatory were suspended for three days. And people were in shock because he was really quite young. Rubenstein, for example, wrote the following, Could this be God's will? What a loss for music in Russia! and it happened in the prime of life. He was only 50, and all this from a glass of water. Everything indeed is nonsense, life, creativity, and all the rest. The funeral, which lasted a full eight hours, was paid for by the Emperor, and it's believed that a 100,000 people took part. There was a procession through the city, of course, coffin on a hearse, a carved white horse-driven carriage. The procession moved through Mariinsky Theatre Square, The theatre itself was draped in black, the lights were shrouded, the windows of the building itself were all decorated with palm wreaths, and the procession gradually made its way to the Kazan Cathedral, on Nevsky Prospect, of course, which was completely overflowing. A wreath of white roses from the city of St. Petersburg was placed on the coffin. There were liturgies, there was music, Glinka's music, Tchaikovsky's own music, choruses, and then eventually... The coffin was taken out of the cathedral again and taken again in procession down Nevsky Prospect to the Alexander Nevsky Monastery where Tchaikovsky was going to be buried. That's about two miles and the whole thing took two and a half hours because so many people had lined the streets to wait. Here's an eyewitness description of what happened, again taken from Roland Wiley's book. In expectation of the bearing of Tchaikovsky's coffin out of the cathedral, Thousands of Petersburgers waited several hours on Nevsky Prospect, in Kazan Square and on Kazan Street. The public formed two veritable walls. Mounted policemen cleared a path for the deputations. On the balconies of houses opposite the cathedral, cameras were in near constant use. On Kazan Street, opposite the cathedral, a trumpet ensemble from the lifeguards Finnish regiment was deployed. Finally then they arrived at the monastery where Tchaikovsky was buried. And as the coffin was lowered into the grave, one of Tchaikovsky's ex-classmates from the School of Jurisprudence read the following words. Farewell, dear beloved colleague. The earth will rest lightly upon you, there is no doubt of this. It always rests lightly on him who leaves behind good memories of himself. And for Tchaikovsky, eternal memory lies in his work and in the love of them who knew him. Farewell. Also from Tchaikovsky's ear then, is Anton Rubinstein, actually a Ukrainian Jew who had moved to Moscow and done his early music learning there, becoming a child prodigy and also touring Western Europe. He lived abroad in Paris, in Berlin, in Vienna. He met a lot of the great musicians of the day, such as Liszt and Chopin and Mendelssohn. But he too came back to Russia, in 1848 in fact, to St. Petersburg, to establish himself as a virtuoso pianist and composer. He was very popular with Nicholas I's widowed sister-in-law, so he had friends in high places. He began to plan to found the Russian Conservatory of Music. He was copying ideas, really, that he'd seen in other cities, Berlin, Paris, etc. It began life as the Russian Musical Society was founded in 1859. That year it had ten concert evenings, ten symphonies were played. And it marked a new beginning in the musical life of St. Petersburg, because until then, music had really been sponsored by the Imperial Theatres, but here was somebody else doing the same thing. The Musical Society eventually became a conservatory, known today as the Rimsky-Korsakov Conservatory, and founded in 1862. Apart from his music, that's probably Rubinstein's greatest legacy, because it is really Russia's oldest music school, and possibly the most famous one. Tchaikovsky studied there, as just mentioned, so did Prokofiev. He was more a Moscow citizen, really, but he studied in St. Petersburg. Shostakovich studied there, too. Moving into the 20th century and the beginning of modernism, somebody who hit the St. Petersburg musical scene with quite a bang is Igor Stravinsky, born in 1882 near St. Petersburg, and growing up in a musical family. Dad, for example, was a bass singer in the opera opera. Stravinsky learnt piano and musical theory as a little boy, but he too was originally going to go down the law route. He studied law and philosophy at St. Petersburg University, but at the same time he was composing pieces of music and he showed some of them to Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who was so impressed that he decided he would take on Stravinsky as a private pupil. So Rimsky-Korsakov taught him and he also helped him get concerts organised so that some of his music could be performed, and this led to his next stroke of luck, because one of the concerts was attended by Sergei Diaghilev, the ballet impresario, who was so impressed that he commissioned Stravinsky to write some music for his Ballets Russes. The Ballets Russes in those days were touring abroad in Paris and looking for new things to perform, and so this was a really serious commission. That was in 1909 and so successful was his piece that the following year Diaghilev commissioned him again and the result of that was a new full-length ballet called The Firebird which premiered at the Paris Opera in June 1910 and was really a massive success and made Stravinsky very well known. The following year he produced a ballet score called Petrushka for which the lead role was danced by Nijinsky, the, the ballet dancer of the day. But the piece that really has remained in memory was the one he wrote the year after that, which was called The Rite of Spring, which met, I think it's fair to say, with more outrage than delight and really got his name known absolutely everywhere. Here's a description of what happened. The first performance of The Rite of Spring at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées on May 29th, 1913, provoked one of the more famous first-night riots in the history of musical theatre, Stirred by Nijinsky's unusual and suggestive choreography and Stravinsky's creative and daring music, the audience cheered, protested and argued among themselves during the performance, creating such a clamour that the dancers could not hear the orchestra. This highly original composition, with its shifting and audacious rhythms and its unresolved dissonances, was an early modernist landmark. From this point on, Stravinsky was known as the composer of the Rite of Spring, and the destructive modernist par excellence. In fact, the combination of him having worked in Paris and the outbreak of World War I, and of course the revolution in 1917, meant that really from that point on, he was no longer in Russia, he was touring abroad. He spent a lot of time in Switzerland, continuing to compose, but perhaps never really reaching the heights of recognition that he achieved in 1913 with the Rite of Spring. And then finally, I'd like to mention one last composer, a generation later again, Van Stravinsky, and that's Dmitri Shostakovich, born in 1906. He studied at the Conservatory, and we know that his teacher said of him the following, quote, I cannot remember ever having had such gifted children as your son within the walls of the Conservatory. Hopefully Dad was pleased with that. Shostakovich went on to become a student. He worked as a pianist in the cinema, actually, in Leningrad, while he was studying to pay his way. We know that his efforts weren't always well received. There's a story that when he once handed in a symphony to a tutor, the tutor ripped it up, shouting, what is this enthusiasm for the grotesque? But nevertheless, his first symphony was a great success, was very enthusiastically received by the public, performed in 1926. It's really, though, perhaps for his seventh symphony, the Leningrad Symphony, which I talked about in the episode on the siege, that he's best remembered. Here he is explaining what it was he was trying to do as he wrote it. Quote, I wrote my seventh symphony, the Leningrad, quickly. I couldn't not write it. War was all around. I had to be together with the people. I wanted to create the image of our embattled country, to engrave it in music. It was becoming less and less popular at home, though, in 1947 the central committee started to mutter about his shortcomings they banned many of his works it's said that even when his son went to a music exam he was asked to denounce his father he was spared expulsion from the composers union which would have meant he couldn't write at all but life was difficult for him performing his music was no longer allowed during the 1950s things got a little easier after the death of Stalin. In 1956, for example, his Eighth Symphony was deemed to be rehabilitated and was performed in Moscow by the Moscow Philharmonic Orchestra. In 1959, he was sent to tour seven American cities with a Soviet delegation. And by the time he died, I think the communists had decided that actually they did quite like him. So his obituary was signed by 85 members of the Politburo, headed at the time by Leonid Brezhnev, and in that they called him, quote, the great composer of our time, and deemed that he was, quote, a loyal son of the Communist Party. The artist-citizen Dmitry Shostakovich devoted his entire life to the development of Soviet music, to the affirmation of the ideals of socialist humanism and internationalism, to the struggle for peace and friendship among nations. So it does sound like he's been rehabilitated, does it not? To follow on then, a few words on places in St. Petersburg that you may wish to visit if you're particularly interested in music. The first one, perhaps, the Rimsky-Korsakov Conservatory, which is still today a flourishing music school for high-performing Russian or mainly Russian music students. It's not open to visit, but it is open for performances. So if you can get tickets for something there, then that's a good way to have a look inside. If you try that, you might want to know that they have two concert halls The Bolshoi Tzau, which means big hall, where there are concerts with tickets that you have to pay for by up-and-coming musicians. But there's also the Mali Tzau, which means small hall, where there are free lunchtime concerts given by current students. So that's quite a good way to just pop in and um, see what's going on and have a look at the surroundings. Outside the building, two statues of note. One of Rimsky-Korsakov, so one of the founders of the conservatory and one of Mikhail Glinka, marking perhaps the fact that that's where his opera A Life for the Tsar had premiered in 1836. The most famous theatre in the whole of the city, of course, is the Mariinsky Theatre. We'll be coming back to that in the next episode on ballet, but it's certainly true that there were musical concerts here as well. It opened in 1860, was named after Maria Alexandrovna, who was the wife of alexander the 2nd and it was the setting for many concerts and ballets often attended in fact by members of the imperial family more about that then in the next episode the two best known concert halls actually for music in st petersburg are the shostakovich philharmonia halls there's a grand hall and a small hall they're both just off the nevsky prospect so easy to find and you can wander in to the grand hall at least and buy tickets at the ticket booth on the ground floor. There's an incredible spread of concerts, particularly during the White Nights Festival. In June 2018, for example, when I was there, I noticed from the programme that there were full classical concert performances on 21 nights in June. A real mix of music, but certainly lots of Russian music. If you're like me, when I'm in Russia, I want to hear something Russian. And there was certainly a good choice of such things. I found it very handy, actually, that I'd spent all those hours learning the Russian alphabet before we set out. It wasn't that much use for understanding most things, because having decoded the words, I still didn't understand them. But it was very handy when looking at the concert programmes, because a little bit of cogitation and hard thought allowed me to unravel that that word said Tchaikovsky, and this one said Rachmaninoff. I could also tell which concerts were in the Bolsheidzal, the Grand Hall, and which were in the smaller one, so recommend it. The concerts we went to were actually a real event. Even in the small hall there are beautifully decorated entrances, a grand staircase, a chandelier lit concert hall and what I noticed particularly was how many young children were at these concerts. Certainly some under 10s and lots of young teenagers all dressed up for the grand occasion, the boys in suits, the girls in pretty dresses and most of them holding bouquets of flowers, which they presented to the musicians at the end of the performance. It was really interesting to see how seriously they seemed to take music. At a piano recital I went to, there were several rows of army cadets, all in completely pristine uniform, who sat and listened attentively to the whole thing. Something I fancied you wouldn't perhaps see in Britain. It was a tradition, actually, even in imperial times, that, not just children, but military and naval cadets, would be taken to the theatre and to concerts. This was continued through Soviet times, the idea being um, arts for the workers, I think, or something on those lines. And so it seems to be just completely normal that young people should be taken to these events, which don't seem to be so mainstream in Britain. Another place you might like to visit is the museum in the Sheremtiev Palace. This palace was built in 1712, owned by the Sheremtia family, right up until 1917, when I imagine they probably fled. They were very wealthy. We know that at one point in the 19th century, they actually had 200,000 serfs working for them. They were great patrons of the arts. They put on lots of concerts. And we know, too, that they used to make a point of finding out which serfs on their various farms and estates were musical and giving them a chance to perform. So there would be surf composers or musicians or actors in the performances really quite frequently. Today, the building works more as a museum, really. But you can see, if you go round, obviously the history of some of the concerts that took place there. And you can see pianos that belonged to people like Tchaikovsky and Glinka and Nicholas II, and a whole lot more period instruments, musical scores, etc., etc. And then lastly, with music in mind you may wish to visit the Alexander Nevsky Monastery because that's the burial site not just for Tchaikovsky, as mentioned earlier but also for Glinka, Mussorgsky, Rimsky-Korsakov as well as writers and artists. I wanted also to mention the theatre. I think probably for most foreign tourists music and ballet is much more accessible but that doesn't mean that there's nothing theatrical that might interest you because there's a history in the city of private theatres sponsored by emperors or very wealthy families, some of which still exist today. And although you may feel that actually sitting through a performance in one of them would be beyond you, you can certainly go and visit, just have a look round and drink in the atmosphere. So I'm going to mention three theatres in St. Petersburg. The first one, the first and oldest one, it's actually Russia's oldest national theatre, full stop. Is called the Alexandrinsky Theatre. It was commissioned by the Empress Elizabeth in 1756 for the what she called the, quote, presentation of tragedies and comedies. The original theatre was a wooden building, which didn't last too long, but in 1832, so 70 or so years later, a new theatre was built on the site, named this time in honour of the wife of Nicholas I, who was called Alexandra Fyodorovna, hence the Alexandrinsky Theatre. Again, very Western-influenced, painted in that yellow and white colour scheme, which you see all over the city, decorated with classical sculptures. A statue of Apollo here, figures of the muses of tragedy and comedy there, that sort of thing. If you go inside, the Tsar's box is the original, although some of the other bits have had to be replaced over the years. It was originally used for all sorts of different things, drama, opera, ballet, mainly by the Imperial Theatre Companies. But in 1860, when the Mariinsky Theatre was opened, that took on more of the ballet and some of the music, and so the Alexandrinsky Theatre became known as the home of drama. It's the place where many of the great works of Russian drama from the 19th century premiered. Plays by Anton Chekhov, for example, were sometimes first seen here. Then there's the Hermitage Theatre, commissioned in 1783 by Catherine the Great, and the first performance held there was a comic opera, called The Miller, Magician, Liar and Affiancer. Catherine herself took a great interest in this. She chose a Russian troupe to perform it, but she personally invited actors and artists from Italy, France and Germany to take part. Again, it fell out of use in Soviet times, but it's been since restored. And on its website, they explain that they see themselves really as a place to, quote, conserve the rich traditions of the world-famous classic Russian ballet. They're keen to point out that an evening at the Hermitage Theatre is an experience you really shouldn't miss, telling you that, quote, you will feel yourself invited at the court reception. In other words, come and relive Imperial times, imagine that you're a guest of the Emperor and you've come to the ballet. As the website puts it, the Hermitage Theatre, quote, makes it possible to step back in time to see a performance just like the ones seen by the crowned heads of state during the days of Imperial Russia. And if you want a third evening pretending that you're hobnobbing with the people who run St. Petersburg in imperial times, then there's the Yusupov Theatre. We've discussed the Yusupov Palace already. If you remember, that's the one where Rasputin was murdered. It had its own theatre built, a little Rococo Palace Theatre. And as their website publicity says, it's another place where you can mix with the aristocracy of a bygone era. So this is how they put it, quote, The life of St. Petersburg's upper echelons of the aristocracy always revolved around home theatres. Music salons and theatrical performances hosted by the Yusupovs gathered prominent high-ranking guests, including members of the Russian royal family. They go on to mention some of the famous people who performed there, people like Franz Liszt, the dancer Anna Pavlova, orchestras directed by Mikhail Glinka and soloists from the Mariinsky Theatre very much open for performances today you can see operas there and operettas but also sometimes ballets and performances especially for children so again if your russian's a bit rusty something there that you can probably enjoy without having to follow every word it's another example of a building that was used very differently in the soviet times after the revolution the palace was seized by the bolsheviks and handed over to the educational authorities Fortunately, they didn't change too much of the inside, so the interior is fairly much as it was. But the building was used as a clubhouse for the city's teachers. So again, letting the paroles into somewhere that in the past only the aristocracy had enjoyed. But post-Soviet era, it's been restored. It's very much open for business as a place of entertainment now and much visited by foreign tourists. So to summarise, I hope I've left you with a good idea of a city which is proud of its musical and theatrical traditions, giving you the idea that if you go to St. Petersburg, going perhaps to a concert or two or a ballet or both, why not? They're all really good ways to get a feel for St. Petersburg in the days of its grandeur a chance to see a ballet or hear some music played in a city where the very best orchestras have played and where classical music and classical ballet are taken really very seriously indeed. That brings us on to plans for next week's episode, which I'm going to devote, in fact, to the ballet in St. Petersburg. I thought that was worth an episode of its own. and going to talk a little bit about the origins and the famous Mariinsky-Stroke-Kirov Ballet Schools which has been such a part of St. Petersburg history over the years. We'll have some potted biographies of a few people famous for the St. Petersburg ballet world, Lijinsky, for example, Diaghilev, Anna Pavlova, Rudolf Nureyev, and some information about some of the world-famous ballets, which actually started right here on the stage in St. Petersburg. For the moment, though, let's leave music and theatre behind. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Spasibo. And to sign off in Russian, dos vidanya.